Arts respectfully acknowledges the Kawishpa Kawiakna, also known as Kawia Band of Indians, and all nine sovereign bands of Kawia people who have stewarded this land throughout the generations and continue to steward this land for all future generations. Idlewild Arts Foundation is proud to present One World, One Idlewild, the series, in conversation with Pamela Jordan. The series brings together thought leaders, creatives, influencers, and changemakers, highlighting the work of citizen artists whose careers and lives have been shaped by the transformative power of art. From Idlewild Arts Academy in Idlewild, California, I'm Pamela Jordan with One World, One Idlewild, the series. Today I'm speaking with Rebecca Chu, an educator and a passionate advocate for the arts. As the founding principal of School of the Arts Singapore and current academy principal of the Singapore Teachers Academy for the Arts, Rebecca strongly believes in the transformative power of the arts to create meaning and joy in people's lives. Trained in choral conducting, she leads a children's choir and participates regularly at international choral conferences. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here with me today. Hi, Pamela. Thank you very much. I am now currently the principal of Holy Innocence High School. And this has been already two years since I've left the Ministry of Education for a new post. So it is wonderful to be with you, with you today, this morning. Well, let, let's just start there. <laughs> I was going to start at the beginning, but really, let's just start there because it's, it's very interesting how you came to be at that school, especially, as I understand it, the school, Holy Innocence, didn't have any arts or doesn't have any arts and music. So talk about that appointment. Yeah. I, well, in, in Singapore, the curriculum is that art and music is compulsory, uh, part of the former curriculum for the 14 and the 13 year or so. That's year one, year two, secondary one, secondary two. What happens here is that it just remains in an appreciation mode. And over the years, I felt that uh, coming to a school where I could value add and share my experience and tacit knowledge, the networks, the school in itself could understand and breathe a different type of seeing, a way of seeing, a way of knowing. So that's where I requested, not specifically to this school, actually to any school where I could, at this point of, of um, I think as an educator, I could also end the experience of, of the working experience with a school that we could enjoy the, the refreshing work of creativity again. Well, our time together goes back to a fateful day in 2000, I believe it was in 2006, when you came to visit Tony Jones, who at the time was president of the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. And we have had a wonderful friendship ever since. So I'm just thrilled to bring your story to our listeners. Your love for music and the arts goes way back. I know that you earned a degree uh, from the Royal Academy of Music in the UK, but where did this love of music come from? Was it in your home? Where did your parents love the arts and music? How did that start for you? Love for music, yes, naturally came from the house, but also from church. Being in a children's choir then from four years old, the children's choir that I lead today at 58 years old, it's the same children's choir through all the hands and years. The nurturing school, the choirs that I was in, and slowly how I grew as a young person, the way I saw the world. But really the encounter for the love of music and arts 
came from the appreciation, the sensibilities were awakened when I was 16 years old. I was asked to represent Singapore in the Girls' Brigade. The Fonomariah camp brought together girls from all over the world at St. Andrews University. And there I saw through crochet, lace making, pony riding, archery. I saw the different facets that's happening in the, uh, the camp that was in the St. Andrews University hosted by Girls' Brigade International. That love fired up for a decision then to one, take up my first degree in literature and linguistics. And then later on, pursue as postgrad in, in the Royal Academy. And then voila, the, the different years just came on. You, um, I had the wonderful privilege of meeting your parents and um, they were just so uh, incredibly warm and welcoming to me. Uh, your father wrote a book in 2006 and um, it was just a joy to go back to that book when I was planning this conversation today. And I, the, the name of the book is Reflections. And I remember reading a chapter and I revisited where his father, your grandfather, wanted your dad to be a mortician. <laughs> but he rejected the idea. Now, I would imagine that a son following the advice of his father was sort of expected in 1946. How do you think his decision to go his own direction for a career shaped his life and subsequently the lives of you and your siblings? I had a conversation just a few days ago with dad about this. Dad today is 89 years old. Oh, that's wonderful. And this year he decided to learn the accordion that's holding almost 19 kilograms of weight on his lap and he decided to learn it again. This conversation was going back to a moment when he decided quite momentously for his life. He told his father that being the richest man in Chinatown just after World War II would become, because you're a promotion, it also introduced him to a dark side of life. And dad said to, his, to my grandfather, no, I don't want to go into the dark side because it's sad business. And the family fortunes may grow, but he decided to stay on and take education as a route. So he joined then uh, Raffles Institution and carried on with, from a very poor background and decided not to go for a very enticing business after World War II and decided to go and study. That, I think, changed quite a momentous part. And Dad asked me to think about, so what made me decide also to go into arts education in the same way? It's like a grandfather talking to a father and a father talking to me. I wanted, had thoughts and dreams of becoming a fashion designer, a journalist and broadcast. But he said, you don't need to be a teacher, girl. Just like mom and dad, you can walk your own road. But I felt that within me, the teacher in me was stronger to want to make my decision. And my dad, because he, his own father respected his decision, he gave me my independence and my own way of thinking and pursued the road that I'm taking right now. So no regrets. Choral music is really your passion. Your work for the International Federation of Choral Music was nominated for the UNESCO Prize for Bridging Peace and Culture in 1996. And in 2000, you were given the high honor of being the first Singaporean to be appointed as the conductor for the inaugural Asian Youth Choir. 
In addition to being an accomplished choral music conductor, you are passionate. You are a passionate advocate for the arts. Now we're going to talk about School of the Arts in a minute, but before we do, why do you think art and music are so important in culture and society? It's, it's a great question, Pam. I think it's life-giving. One, it's life-transforming. And why is that? Because it breathes uh, everything that you want to say and put your soul, your being into the form that you're enacting into. So art and music is just not only the, the literary arts, the performing arts, whichever way, the five senses actually. And through that way, we, the way we see the world, the way we represent our thoughts, our inner feelings, that becomes a way of thinking also, the world perspective. And the broader the perspective we bring to life, and the more that the life transforming work, we work with others and young people, that becomes a conduit because it becomes part and parcel of the socializing process, especially if you are educators. If you're working using arts, the arts as a, as a whole, capital A, um, the leadership in that provides us a way of talking to the people, the young people, the way they experience their lives, their lived experiences, because it's a way of seeing, a way of knowing the new world their world, which is really spinning right now in front of our eyes. If you're just joining me, my guest today is Rebecca Chu, founding principal of School of the Arts and current principal of Holy Innocence High School in Singapore. You know, one reason I wanted to do this podcast was to support arts leaders and education leaders um, and to really share the strong network that we enjoy and call upon as leaders in arts and arts education. Um, I'm approached very often, as I'm sure you are, by people around the world who are considering starting an art school. You were the founding principal of of School of the Arts Singapore, and I heard you once say that starting the school was both exciting and daunting. Who decided that Singapore should have a secondary school with a focus on the arts? And why was that decision made? Because I I heard a lot um, about uh, having arts at the college level, Uh, but this was a decision to really have it at a a younger level, at a high school level. Talk about that decision. The decision to to think about having a specialized arts school uh, started with the Renaissance City Report in 2000. And that gathered a forum of many different parts and levels of society in Singapore, thinking about a future. It was a futuring exercise. It wasn't just uh, one body deciding and that's it. The future, the hopes and the aspirations were for our young people. What kind of scenario would they be walking into, into the workplace? not only with the arts, but with the skills and competencies that were relevant for, to survive for us as a small city nation in Singapore. At 2000, we were thinking of how could we then create new ways of seeing and knowing that we ourselves had not experienced as adults. That was the daunting part because no one had created a school, not as a hothouse, but also academically strong. So we wanted to work from a position of strength and finding children that were not virtuosic only or that only X number of students are protégés, but not too hot 
house them, but to provide them an education that is holistic. So at the, I think at the really fundamental is the moral compass that drove a decision of wanting the children to, what values would they be having? What kind of aptitudes and dispositions they would be having? And that began the, the origins of the, the SOTA. What for me was very daunting was, was a blank canvas. And we always talk about that in the school. First, when there's a blank canvas, it's just to have one idea strong enough to create many ideas. Family, whoa, that's really just, you got to dive deep in and ask. You can't do it alone. You just got to get many collaborators, many teams of people as diverse and, and as opposite as yourself in thinking and to hold that ambiguity in design and be ready to crash out. Like when you mold clay and you don't think that ceramics will work, you just take the pot and have the courage to just break it and start molding the clay all over again. That daunting sight, not just blank canvas, taking something up, happened at the beginning of SOTA. All of us as a small team of teachers, we were so happy and, and, and grateful that we had uh, designed the curriculum. <laughs> we walked three weeks into the curriculum and it didn't work. It was just pitched to difficult level. And our potter, ceramist Jesse Lim, one of our foremost Singapore artists, stood up during our staff meeting and said, come on, let's break it. Let's start all over again. Everybody went, my precious design artwork. The curriculum didn't work because it was just pitched at a higher level. So, you know, the ideation for SOTA is just not just about one um, central government body decision. It's a whole community that builds a whole village of teachers. And over years, you know, as schools grow, not just for 10 years, 50 years, I hope, 100 years, more than 100 years to come, Different teams of people who have to put their will to create, to lead, and at different times, that artwork would change and morph over time. So my privilege actually, Pam, was at that particular time when we started it. The design started in 2002. The talking and ideation began at 2000. But SOTA was only opened in 2018. That amount of talking gave the school a great impetus to look into difficulties from ideation, construction, finding the people, and then finally to the people who graduated. You know, this process of the systematic longitudinal thinking and uh, really adaptive thinking across time is not something very well usual for educators who like to have fixed structures to drive curriculum. And today we're still faced with the same problems with adult learning. For me, even now at HIHS, uh, Holy Innocence High School, I'm confronted not about the students learning, I'm confronted about the adults willing to transform their way of thinking to be adaptable to change and how to lead with the courage, even though our own schooling, our own school, adult school how what we went through, what we lived through, may not be relevant to the young 13-year-old walking into the new collaborative workplace. You and I can't predict that future. But what is most important, and I've learned from this lesson from SOTA, from the Singapore Academy of Teachers, this whole idea of being 
resilient and taking 100% risk. It's 50-50. <laughs> but then when you arrive at some point, you must be say, you must be courageous enough to say, I'm going to break it. I've got to readapt. I've got to change the structure. But you know it has a long tail. Systemically, structures drive behavior. And the people at the last tail of the end, you just need to win them over. So if anything about this arts focus is taught us about the framing with a crazy imagination to vary from the norm. And when you arrive somewhere, you call the norm, it's ready to break again. And you just got to do an improvisation before it stabilizes again. If not, break the beautiful ceramic pot and mold again. You're listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series presented by Idlewild Arts Foundation. My name is Pamela Jordan. We'll be right back. Idlewild Arts Academy is an independent boarding arts high school whose mission is to change lives through the transformative power of art. Located just two hours inland from Los Angeles and San Diego and one hour from Palm Springs, the school sits on 205 acres of forested land in the San Jacinto Mountains. Academy students receive a challenging college preparatory academic curriculum while engaging in pre-professional training in their chosen arts discipline. The school is also home to its world-renowned summer program that serves children starting at age 5 through adults age 95. Idlewild Arts believes that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity, no matter the ultimate expression, hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. To learn more, visit idlewildarts.org. Use code OneWorld2021 to receive a $50 discount to the 2021 summer program. Quantities are limited. Restrictions apply. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts and visit idlewildarts/giving to make a gift today. If you're just joining us, today I'm speaking with Rebecca Chu, founding principal of School of the Arts Singapore and current academy principal of the Singapore Teachers Academy for the Arts. Well, I'm going to ask you the obvious then. I mean, you're you're talking about it a little bit, but you know, school leaders everywhere are um, are returning to campuses after this pandemic, uh, and we want to to reinvent, redesign. But I'm sure that many will find themselves falling back into old patterns that we know didn't work. But you know, we're we're just we're relying on the things that we knew. So making those connections, you know, it was one thing to start an art school; it was a new venture. But now we're we're all in this boat together of returning to our campuses and doing things differently. So how is that going for you now? How, how are you applying those lessons learned from SOTA, from starting that school to where you are now? I One of the great lessons that I learned was just to be resilient and adaptive to change. And I want to encourage every school leader there with the moral purpose that you have because of your calling as an educator, when you return back to school, just take on the full load and jive with it because that's what your calling and vocation calls of you. It's actually a call to mission, period. Then with the values that you have and you want to share with your young people, that adaptability would come naturally because it's day-to-day operations. But when you're purpose-driven, your values are anchored, that will probably bring you a long way 
because every school context will be different, both here and where you are. But I want to encourage every school educator to really, when you take risk in this ambiguous environment, your judgment call is as good as the last one that you did. But with the trust that you build with your team members around with you, each one would give a diverse perspective. At the end of the day, yourself as the school leader, you would also have to take a calculated risk. One thing, uh, I didn't actually prepare this question. I just remembered it while you were talking. And you all developed the, what you termed the connected curriculum. Can you talk a little bit about that? I thought for art schools, I thought that was very, very interesting the way you approached the academic and the artistic learning. I, Kate, I had that um, insight when I was talking to Howard Garner. The, the visit gave me insight uh, where it's not about interdisciplinary. You need to be good in your, the depth of the subject, the disciplinarity are part of it. And before you can experiment to go interdisciplinary or even transdisciplinary, where we we have a new form of, of expression of creativity. So I felt that if we are already spending almost about 12 hours with the specialized arts and we need to be collaborative teams, the curriculum could therefore brief the way that they were expressing themselves together with the academic work conceptually. So if we're talking about balance or form or momentum, these were also basic con concepts that were also taught in maths and science, uh, even in poetry. So the conversation actually, the connected curriculum was coined by our staff. Um, that it doesn't exist anywhere in the world, but it's basically an idea of taking concepts that are non-contrived to come together. But it took us almost about three years and every time setting up something and then uh, dismantling it and having conversations again. The highest learning curve for all of us then was uh, came from the adults because they found themselves asking questions. Why are we bound in silos that we never explored until we were in high institutions? Sometimes the cognitive levels, well, the abilities may be because of age appropriate, but they were asking themselves, why didn't they change the pedagogy to make difficult concepts simpler and be a scaffold towards uh, more deeper learning and an inquiry-based approach. So this way of layering, like a constructivist approach, the inquiry would then be investigative over one concept over another. It may not be linear, but where we could join together, that was the space. Then the national curriculum did not allow us to play in these inter-silos uh, conceptual realigning the curriculum parts altogether. The art school gave us complete freedom, autonomy to break away from national curriculum. That's the crux of it. And therefore we made full leverage on what we were able to do to move the concepts together across all subjects. And of course, therefore the diversity in the teams that built this curriculum was critical in the first few years. And that came true later when all the cohorts, ensuing cohorts, enjoyed the, the good grades and the good results. We felt that uh, looking back, some of the work can be given to the rest of the, what you call, uh, rest of the government schools in Singapore, the rest of the schools. But this model is not easy because it takes really, really different types of um, flexible thinking. 
and critical, flexible thinking are one of the qualities that we need. Within this art school, the ethos was then to build a more gracious society where people were having more adaptive thinking, collaborative, um, really of the high end, the gifted and the intellectually able. I don't think it was elitist because that time we wanted every child from every primary school to come into the school. And we left it to chance for what would be able to come in. Today, the competition to school remains very keen and very high. But at the same time, after more than 10 years, I see the work spilling over into our mainstream schools. Because now, one of the great things we have would be providing every child with a laptop and a personal device. And that every child has access in school. Before, I was privileged to a small field. But now teachers are saying, hey, I've got to up my game in e-pedagogy. Otherwise, I can't get the first three seconds of attention from a young child who's brought up with gaming. This kind of programming or curriculum uh, instruction leadership requires actually a paradigm shift from the adult, more so than the child. And, and Pam, I, I really encourage more educators to take on this road. Even if you don't have the arts as a component in your IB curriculum, the main core is that you need to have an all-rounded education to, to get into that future. There are, there are so many things I want to connect and, and ask you. Um, let, let's go back, to, uh, because when SOTA opened, as you said, it was very different than any other school you know that, that the country had ever seen. And, um, and you talked about the, the teachers, the artists, the, the practitioners who came to work there. But I sometimes very much think of the parents um, because um, really to, to move away from, you know, where the other children are going to school or, you know, much like we spoke about your father in, in charting their own course. And these are, these are students, when you look at an, at an art school, they have a passion, a passion for the arts. And I think it takes a lot of courage and a lot of faith in one's child um, to choose a, a different type of schooling. I often say to parents about Idlewild Arts that this school is not about the difference in schools, but instead it's about the difference in your child. In independent schools, we always talk about that fit. Thinking about the parents, what through line, what characteristic did you see in that parent that would choose something very different for their child? They would allow them to go on that path. Can you speak to what, what was brave? What was different? You've given me a difficult proposition. <laughs> Let me share with you one episode that I had with a, a father. He said, Rebecca, my daughter really wants to go into ballet. She wishes to apply for, for dance at, at Sota, right at the beginning years. I know she won't make it, but as a father, I'm pained. Uh, I won't share this to my, my openly with the rest of colleagues because professionally, I feel that the, the art school is a, a real good proposition. I see the great uh, opportunities there. But what shall I do? So I looked at this father and said, you know, dad, being the great dad you are, thank you for being honest with me. First, you know that your child has a dream to go into dance, but yet you know the standards she may not meet. 
So as a dad, why do you allow her to have that choice to at least go closer to her dreams and not impose your will on her so that later on, 25 years later, she doesn't turn around to you and say, dad, you closed that door for me. You never gave me this. You never gave me that. You didn't do this for me. You didn't do things this for, for me. But by giving her the permission, he said, let her fail forward. And then she will know in her own lived experience, when next time when you have another conversation with her, she would know the wisdom behind your choice for her. So most times I would really encourage parents, if you know your child that well, at the end of the day, even if every child will always be special and much loved and well loved, and you want to provide the best, but it cannot be the parents will only. The child must be and allow a professional panel then to guide and counsel the, the choices that the child makes for the school. Let's take a break. My guest today is Rebecca Chu, founding principal of School of the Arts and current principal of Holy Innocence High School in Singapore. We'll be right back. At Idlewild Arts, we believe that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts and visit idlewildarts/giving to make a gift today. Welcome back. My guest today is Rebecca Chu, founding principal of School of the Arts and current principal of Holy Innocence High School. Now, we'll, we'll leave SOTA only for a minute. I could ask you for the next two hours about SOTA. But you became uh, a principal, I, I think, over the professional development at Singapore Teachers Academy for the Arts. And I think I'm saying that right, but I, I don't think I've seen anything like STAR. It's known as STAR. Can you explain what that is and how it supports arts education? You know, what was beautiful is that we have what we call PAM, P-E, Art and Music. These three subjects are um, part of our, our former curriculum. And for art, music is, is a compulsory uh, subjects within the normal school curriculum. And what was really um, felt was we needed academies to drive the professional uh, development for teachers to build structures and, and intent and focus. So whilst before teachers just had their own ad hoc programs for, for PD, this academy focused on teachers' professional development for art and music. So it became structured. And these academies had that particular mission. It's very unique, yes. And it's part and parcel of the Ministry of Education to bring that holistic education. So to build the teacher's capability to bring good pedagogy into classrooms, we also focus on teachers' growth. You know, even in schools where the arts are, not, are taught to a much lesser degree, School leaders feel the strain of balancing resources of time and money, and far too often they cut the arts from the curriculum or they're, as we say, watered down in some way. What is your personal message to school leaders in terms of their role and the difference that the arts can make in, in, in learning? What would you say to the leader? To the leader, the, I said earlier before, the arts is life-giving. It's life transforming. It doesn't need to be just 
because you do not have enough funds and resources and therefore it is marginalized. It lives and breathes through maths, the way you draw your 10 grams and we can calculate angles and we can color it beautifully because next time there will be the architecture drawings for our future buildings and the underground worlds that will be coming. The arts and music, literature, poetry, because it's life-giving to the school leader, normal day-to-day -day operations can breathe the arts through the way we express ourselves, through the walls that we build, bring the expressions we put up, the way we paint our classrooms, the way we do our landscape within our school, the flowers we grow, the trees we grow, and how we appreciate the seasons of our life together with the seasons that's happening around us. It does not necessarily have to be confined within the classroom. So because it's life transforming, the way you see the world and how you perceive it, the canvas therefore in the school landscape goes beyond just a textbook. It goes beyond also just a personal digital device. It's life. And the way you live life with the kids in your school community would also embrace the arts because of the way you see and respect nature, life-giving, the way things go around you in day to day. You know, you mentioned access. I came across a, a, a video. It was, I'm sure it was uh, one of your professional development workshops. And uh, you were moderating a panel titled Accessibility for Diverse Communities, the Role of Cultural Institutions. And there you said, accessibility of the arts adds value to the communities around us. Um, certainly here in the United States, we're talking a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion, access. And if you could just, if you could just talk about that a little bit more, creating access, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, you, schools don't have a choice. Children don't really have a choice. Where do they live? That's where they go. So, so what do you mean then about creating access and what, what can schools do or cultural institutions you were looking at to create access for, for young people? I, I was coming from a standpoint of view is not exclusivity. The, the care, the culture of care brings the young person with special needs into the larger community. And therefore, most of the times we, we want to wrap them and then take, uh, take them out in a special class. But I think there should be a movement where they can go into mainstream classes and be part of the lived experience of the student experience. It prepares them much stronger in the rough, wild community out there. Because the more in school that was a safe place that we all believe in very much, the world outside is prepared for, for life, to be life-giving as an educator, that special needs person needs to also interact with other, other kids. And these others, I, I feel as an educator, we should strongly advocate. That means not too, time is given for our special needs children to be together as one whole group. But a lot more time should be given for these people to be integrated with the cohort experience. If I have a camp, it's together with everybody. It's not a pull-out group. If you are expecting discipline norms from the rest of the able children, those who are not so able, you need to live to the same standards because that's what the outside workplace demands of you too. That was what I was trying to talk about, inclusive communities. The way we see people, regardless of whatever social status, agendas that they have behind, the way we accept them, the openness of heart 
and then whatever the cultural norms would be that require, is required of that place and time that would guide you. But to come away and shrink from that, um, I think it, we, we are walking backwards in time. You know, most of our jobs would be obsolete, 60% of our jobs very quickly within the next five years. How can we then prepare these young people into a much more uh, difficult workplace when all their five senses will be required, not only through the arts, but the arts give special access that they can use their five senses to use their strength from a position of strength to enter into these workplaces. What more for a, a fast changing online community that uses these senses too. Uh, I think one, for me, adaptive learning is important. But who is changing those? The teacher. The lid on the capability, the teacher has to lift that lid so that the potential can just grow. But if we use our own norms and mores of seeing teaching pedagogy as come together, let's sit around and just sing a song. That song doesn't break the circle. That's where it lies your answer. I, as we wrap up, I, I kept thinking while you were talking, I, I, love, I love the passion that you bring. It's, it's just as the day that I met you when you were looking at a blank canvas. Um, really, would you just share um, or, or, or encourage, how would you encourage educators today, uh, especially, you know, we're talking at this time when we're all dealing with the global health pandemic and we're dealing with coming out of that. Just what would you say to encourage uh, everyone, educational leaders, arts leaders, teachers, and parents, what is your message to them today? Have the courage to lead in all the areas you are leading in, your families, your schools, your communities. Have the compassion to serve with humility of heart because not only brave hearts and stout minds will make us, will see us through the pray, give thanks for every blessing that comes our way. And then the journey becomes easier when you open your heart to have a conversation, to be present, to listen to the other. And when you respect those norms, I think the conversations will be easier. The journey forward when we come back together as schools. Singapore, all schools are in full swing. We have all the kids back in school. I have a, I have a school population of 1,100. And each time and each year when we come together, these are the things that we would say each morning. Thank you. It's, it's a great morning. Have an awesome week ahead. We do not know what lies ahead. We thank God that it's a great day and we move on again. The opportunity to be honest with your child is precious because the child learns that from you, parents. We receive that from our own teachers, from our own parents. But even if you didn't have an opportunity from your own parents or guardians, you can create that opportunity with your child and your children. And teachers, that's where you stand in the gap. Because within the community, you can impact and influence 
because you're an educator, you've been called as a vocation to be an educator. It's a privilege that I met Pam when she was in that school and I asked her this difficult moment when I was filled with, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to start a school. She looked at me and she said, you just do it, girl, just do it. <laughs> that, that fateful short one hour sitting down with Pam was so impactful and I invited her to be one of the great speakers back, not only in, in our school this, at SOTA, but also at our national conference for the arts educators nationally. I'm very grateful for the time that she's given to us to, um, an opportunity to learn from her wisdom. Pam Jordan is a, a wise counsellor. You have, you have her on board on your team. Ask her for all her nuggets of wisdom. She is she's not only an old trooper, she's innovative, creative, really, really a person of genuine warmth, lots of compassion. It's a privilege, Pam, to have your friendship and your guidance and your leadership in the arts field all the time. And I thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm deeply touched. If we, uh, if we were in a room together, you would see that I am blushing. <laughs> thank you so very much for, for your friendship over the years and what, what I feel we have built together. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I know our listeners have enjoyed the conversation and I can't wait to see you in Singapore again soon and, and all of your Holy Innocence High School family. I can't wait to see everybody. Thank you very much. Thank Have a great you. day, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My guest today has been Rebecca Chu, an educator and a passionate advocate for the arts. Rebecca spoke with me from Singapore via Zoom on April 6, 2021. We'll be right back with my next guest, Marie Catherine Payen, also known as MC. MC is a senior in the Inner Arts Department at Idawal Arts Academy, Idlewild Arts Academy is an independent boarding arts high school whose mission is to change lives through the transformative power of art. Located just two hours inland from Los Angeles and San Diego and one hour from Palm Springs, the school sits on 205 acres of forested land in the San Jacinto Mountains. Academy students receive a challenging college preparatory academic curriculum while engaging in pre-professional training in their chosen arts discipline. The school is also home to its world-renowned summer program that serves children starting at age 5 through adults age 95. Idlewild Arts believes that art is the greatest teacher of humanity and that the practice of creativity, no matter the ultimate expression, hones each individual's desire and ability to craft global change. To learn more, visit idlewildarts.org. Use code OneWorld2021 to receive a $50 discount to the 2021 summer program. Quantities are limited. Restrictions apply. Please consider supporting the students of Idlewild Arts and visit idlewildarts/giving to make a gift today. From Idlewild Arts Foundation in Idlewild, California, I'm Pamela Jordan with One World, One Idlewild, the series. Today, I'm speaking with Marie Catherine Payen, also known as MC. MC is a senior in the Inner Arts Department at Idlewild Arts Academy where she focuses on visual arts, fashion, and creative writing. MC enjoys the imaginative aspect of creating art and telling stories, 
whether it is the stories about her own life or the characters that she creates. MC is from the United States and Haiti, and her experience in the culture of both countries play a role in the art she creates. MC, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for inviting me. So you uh, you transferred into Idlewild Arts in your junior and senior year. Uh, that can be a little daunting <laughs> for someone to change schools. What were you looking for and what did you find at Idlewild Arts? That's a great question. Um, I think one of the main things was that um, at my old high school, I was really just, I had um, in eighth grade, I'd applied to like an arts program at a school and I'd gotten rejected. And that kind of turned me away from the arts. And I felt like, you know, I wasn't good enough to be an artist. So freshman and sophomore year, I was really just throwing myself into my studies and like AP classes. And I was realizing how like sucked of life I felt and how <laughs> drained. And I was like, I need to find some creative outlet. And I would find myself, you know, working on a project for English and trying to include spoken word or like a project for another class and like trying to make it into an art project because I missed that so much. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I think that's really what it was, is that I was like, I need art in my life. Um, and I need a school that supports that because I can't, I don't have time with the current workload that I was carrying and it wasn't really things I was interested in. Um, yeah, that's what brought me to Idaho. That, that's unimaginable to me, <laughs> having seen your work, seen your photographs. Um, and you know, one of the things about you here at Idaho Arts, you are an inter arts major, right? So that's, that's different. Tell people what, what an inter arts major is and what it is you, you focus on. Yeah, um, thank um, I think a lot of people have an assumption that inner arts is like, people are like, you don't know what you want to do. And for me, it really wasn't the case. It's like, I do know what I want to do, but the problem is it's everything. <laughs> you know, um, I just, I really have grown a lot as an artist being in the inner arts program, just because it's given me so much freedom to explore all these different routes. Like I've grown a lot in photography and before coming here, I didn't even know that was an interest of mine, you know, and now it's like something I'm considering as like a possible career path. And not just that, but also like seeing the other artists in inner arts, like my best friend, she's a, she really focuses on music and I know nothing about music, but I enjoy having that around me and all these different people with different interests and I'm learning so much not just from like my experiences in my classes but like from them you know you know one of the things that 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 drew me to Idlewild Arts um, and that I think is so interesting here it's not uh, just about the art making many schools you know concentrate on pre-professional training in the arts but it's really finding your voice right really uh, developing what you have to say really developing that that world view if you will so i want to shift gears a little bit because you have a very interesting background um and I, so i want to get into that so your your father is haitian your mother is caucasian and you grew up, I think you lived in, in Haiti for what, about 10 years? Yeah. Um, what What were your experiences growing up in Haiti? And do you feel like any of them, any of your experiences um, directly related to your mom being white and living in Haiti? Well, I think a lot of, there's a lot of different layers to my experiences because I do have a lot of great memories of living in Haiti and the culture there. But I also do have you know, the side of you where it's like, yeah, I grew up with a white mom. My dad wasn't really in the picture as much. So I didn't have him influencing me culturally, but rather like my mother's friends and like close family friends who were Haitian. 
you know, and like, so a lot of the time when I was meeting new people in Haiti, you know, most Haitians are of a lot darker skin than I am. And so there was always that aspect of like, oh, you know, she's foreign, even though I was, I moved to Haiti a month after being born. I spoke the language fluently, you know, all of these, like I grew up there, um, but I was always seen as a foreigner in a lot of new circles I was being introduced to, but close family friends, they would, you know, we clicked and that was like a really big part of my life, really important part of my life. Um, but yeah, there was a, seen as a foreigner because of the color of your skin. That, that yeah. <laughs> and because like, you know, I remember like a lot of other kids, um, you know, they would be able to like in Haiti, like if you're a foreigner, like there's like, it's not, I don't want to say dangerous per se, but like people have expectations. Like you're a foreigner, you're rich, your parents, you know, like will pay a lot of money if you get like, um, I don't know, kidnapped or something. And like, so when I was younger, like I did not go out of my house unless I was like in a car with my mom or like with a close family friend, like everyone else I'd see these kids, like they'd be able to like, go in the streets, you know, and play and all these things. But I have to do it from a very safe distance from like inside my house or like in the, in like a certain area, you know, that was designated. And it was just, I don't know, there's a ways I didn't feel included, but there are also ways where I really just enjoyed my time. And like, you know, we had, um, you know, ceremonies where we'd like all dance together and like celebrate, you know, um, Haitian like voodoo and like all these, you know, we'd have food and we have so much life and like family and connection to each other. And I really value that and miss that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Did, and and uh, does this play out in any of your artwork, in, in the photographs you seek or the, the um, you know, the visual arts, the painting? Does that, your experience in your time there influence your art at all? Oh, uh, yeah, I would say it does. Um, I think a lot of my values, like in Haiti, there are certain values I took with me coming to the States and like, because there's a lot for me, there was a lot of like, there's a big culture shock coming to the States and like certain things that are positive and negative, like the consumerism, for example, or just like general things that were seen as important, you know, in everyday life versus what I found to be important in Haiti. Like, you know, there is a big emphasis on family and also like the spirits that we have and um, just nature in general and like respecting it and like all these mystical things. And I feel like I try to put that in my art a lot. Um, I remember my mom, she used to read to me every night when I was younger and it was a way of keeping consistency because we like, we would move a lot like in Haiti and in the States. So she was like, you know, no matter what's happening at the moment, we're going to be reading tonight. And so that was something I also carried with me. Um, I really love stories and like having, you see that every piece I'd make is always has a story behind the character and like who they are, you know, and I really try to develop that a lot. You know, Iowa Arts is, uh, for those who may not know us, extremely diverse. We have students from all around the world, um, I, th I think from 35, 37 countries this year. Um, what is it like to, um, you do, I would think that in, in, in our arts, you collaborate a lot, with, both with people in the department, across departments, as you expand your interest. So, you know, you come with this, already this very diverse background, um, you know, having lived in, in Haiti and living in, in the United States, what is it like to collaborate in this, in this environment? It's awesome. <laughs> uh, especially like um, for inner arts, we do a lot of shows and Abby really pushes us to think outside of the box. And 
everyone in my department has different gifts, you know, and it's really about trying to figure out where all of those fit in together, you know, and like trying to create pieces that really um, take pieces from, like take part, like, I'm <laughs> sorry, um, take um, pieces from all of us and just connect it together. Um, I feel, um, I always, I my mother, she was a, she's a facilitator. And so a lot of the time when I was younger, I was trying to facilitate conversation or like trying to get people together, like being like, okay, you're going to come with me. We're going to go play. We're going to do this. I'm giving you each <laughs> roles to play in this. And I would just, I still do it to this day. I'm like, okay, this person has really strong visual art skills. And this person has really good writing skills. Like, let's see how we can put this into a project that really works to like highlight all of these together. Yeah. That's so funny. I think we can, I think we can see you being a, a leader, uh, leading something in the future. So you, you talk a, a lot about your mother. I want to shift there a little bit because your mom works with a nonprofit beyond borders whose mission is to end child slavery and prevent violence against women and girls in Haiti. What have you learned watching your, your mother, you know, in, in that capacity? Um, what, what have you learned from that? And, you know, what do you think of the organization and what she's committed to? Um, I think a lot of what I learned, especially when I was younger, because I would go with her to like retreats and stuff for like her board members, like people in her teams. And a lot of what I, she'd facilitate conversations. And that's something that I've kind of carried with me, as I mentioned before. Um, I just really aware of like making sure that everyone in a space gets the time to speak and like the opportunity to say what they have to say and do, like especially in group projects like I'll be like okay like what do you think about this like people who don't because I feel like everyone has a voice that they want to share um I think that's also kind of affected me in the sense that like I feel like a facilitator a lot of the time rather than like a person whose voice I feel like, oh, I should, you know, like I should share what I feel about this as well. But I'm getting better at that. I want you to talk a little bit more about um, facilitating dialogue. Um, and I, I, I think I'm asking that all the things that are going on and particularly in the United States right now, um, Black Lives Matter, uh, institutional racism, systemic racism, really trying, you know, to address these things, uh, you know, uh, at, at institution wide, you look at what's happening politically, you know, it's clear that we need to talk and we need to hear one another. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say, you know, people have something to say and, and, you know, how, and you thinking about facilitating dialogue, talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, um, I think one of the ways I've been trying to facilitate dialogue lately, just because I've, you know, there's been a lot less interaction with people um, in person now. So I've been just trying to like make art that really expresses how I feel, because I feel like words at this point, like it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't speak loud enough for me about how I feel as an individual and how groups like of people that are sim like similar to me feel as well. Um, I think that also something that I missed growing up and that I've been trying to add more to is like um, representation, like art and like the media. I want people like me who are biracial, who are, you know, growing up in different countries, who are just gender fluid, like all these different layers of me. I want them to feel like there's someone out there who feels the same way. And that's another way that I feel like I'm facilitating is just I'm being like, here's something I feel. If you feel this way too, that's awesome. If you don't, let's talk about it. Let's 
what do you know about people like us? Like, what do you, what do you like? Let's talk about, like I said, let's have that conversation, <laughs> you know? That's really beautiful. Um, that That's really beautiful, especially when I think about sort of the arc of your life so far. And um, clearly this is something special. I think at Idlewild Arts is, um, uh, you know, being that scholar artist, I'm going to say clearly academically, you could handle the work, but you wanted this balance really in your life to have more art, to be, um, to be expressive, right. To go further than words could, could go just like you're saying. So you're graduating in a, in a few months, um, and putting a, she says, yes. <laughs> what are your plans after high school? Um, you know, for a while I had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> um, I still have a very vague idea, but um, I got into my top school right now, which is CCA, California College of the Arts. It's in San Francisco. And it's pretty much my dream school just because of how, um, well, how interdisciplinary their classes are and how they push you artistically. And like, it's a very small community, which I love. It's sim similar to Idlewild in that way where you know everybody, but it's also in a big city. And I just feel like even though I'm not sure exactly what career I want to pursue, I know that I want it to be in the arts. I really want to just not just um, grow my toolkit of like artistic making, but also in like entrepreneurship and like that side of things. Cause I feel like artists are often seen as like, you know, the starving artist. And I just want to find ways that I can build those tools so I can like create financial stability in this job, not just for myself, but for other artists and like, yeah, just create a community. <laughs> You know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, to go back to um, what your mother does, we have a program here at Idlewild Arts Academy called Art and Society. And I think um, I think I heard that, are you going to be interviewing your, your mom or one of, her, um, one of her colleagues or something? Interesting thing, we just did that interview two days ago. Um, oh. It was awesome. Um, yeah, my mom has two colleagues, Elia and Tibebe, and they're in Haiti right now. And, um they are her team members in like you know um <laughs> in um for beyond borders and they really um they're both artists so tibebe is a poet and Ilya is a singer and neither of them grew up learning how to read or write so all of their songs and like poems are being shared out loud and in person and it's just oh my gosh that interview was amazing <laughs> I really hope everyone checks it out um, when it um, when we finish getting it edited and translated. But it was really beautiful. Um, I think it really just I I've known them like about them my whole lives, but I've you know been in the U.S. now more often than not, and I haven't really gotten the chance to hear their their words you know before now. And I was like getting teary during the interview. I was like you know they're artists in Haiti and they have voices and they're speaking up, and I didn't really get that much of the artistic um side of like my growing up in Haiti like I saw artists and stuff but I wasn't really like seeing how impactful their words could be and how their stories could you know help people like these songs talk about like how not to be violent towards children you know in your homes and stuff and also how to be you know you know the war the the, <laughs> the battle for like getting freedom and like getting justice you know and it just it made me really happy and really proud to be Haitian and like having such powerful women, um, such important members in my community, like just, yeah, being amazing artists, activists. You know, thank you so much for that. That is um, happening at Idlewild Arts. You're really bringing 
um, their voice, their stories um, to Idlewild Arts, you really are making that possible, both in, in knowing who they are and, and in interviewing them and then hearing you say, and now it's got to be translated, right? So that this community can understand. Um, thank you for using your art in so many different ways and so many powerful ways um, and for making Idlewild Arts the, 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 the school that it is, the place that it is. Thank you for speaking with me today, MC. Thank you for having me. My guest today was MC Payen, a senior in the Inner Arts Department at Idlewild Arts Academy, where she focuses on visual arts, fashion, and creative writing. I spoke with MC via Zoom on March 7, 2021. Join me next time when my guest is Dr. Stephen Levine, retired president of California Institute of the Arts. Stephen and I discuss his recently released biography, Stephen D. Levine, Failure is What It's All About, a life devoted to leadership in the arts. Stephen also speaks about leading CalArts through a crisis following the Northridge earthquake of 1994 and why art, the artistic process, and artists are so important today. I will also speak with Joseph Davis, a senior in the music department who was unable to travel from Jamaica to the United States to complete his senior year due to the pandemic. I hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening to One World, One Idlewild, the series, a creation and production of Idlewild Arts Foundation. Executive produced by me, Pamela Jordan. Directed and produced by Rose Colella. Edited, engineered, and mastered by Justin Holmes. Graphic design by Mark Biley. Marketing and publicity by Wendy Winks. Marketing assistance by Rose Colella, Andrew Edwards, and Nick Ryan. Production and research assistance by Keith Miller. Creative consultation by Palencia Turner. Production support by Marianne Kent Stoll. Technical support by John Lawrence, Michael Quick, and Tom Wadbrook. Our theme song is Beaconing. It was composed and performed by the incomparable Marshall Hawkins. Pamela Jordan was appointed president of Idlewild Arts Foundation in 2014. Prior to this position, she held the distinction of being the first female and first African-American head of school of the Chicago Academy for the Arts, where she held the position for 12 years. She currently serves on the boards of the California Association of Independent Schools, the Association of Boarding Schools, and Art Schools Network, and is on the Global Education Advisory Council for Shanghai Huer Collegiate School Kanshan. One World, One Idlewild, the series, is a product of Idlewild Arts Foundation. Any use of materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication, without the prior written consent of Idlewild Arts Foundation, is strictly prohibited. <laughs>